Hi all, I'm Cullen Haynes and welcome to Law Live. I have a very two very special guests to bring on um, on episode uh, 36 of our Law Live. My first guest is uh, Charles Lowenhop. Um, leader and wealth counsellor for high, ultra high net worth families around the world. He's the chairman and partner of Lowenhop and Chasnop LLC, the first US law firm to concentrate in tax law and established by Charles's grandfather in 1908. And Charles is also the founder and director of Lowenhop Global Advisors Australia, a family-based office in Sydney. So please make very welcome Charles Lowenhop to the show. Welcome, Charles. Thank you, Colin. Pleasure, pleasure. And we've got Brett Gooden as well, who has over 30 years of international financial services experience with a focus on international law and investment management. And prior to working at um, Lowenhop Global Advisors Australia, Brett was with Fidelity International Limited for 19 years, for most of that time as president and CTO, CEO of Fidelity Investments in Asia and Pacific region. And we're very um, fortunate to have him on the show with us today. Welcome, Brett. Thanks, Colin. Good morning. Good morning. It's an absolute pleasure to have you both on. And I'd love to ask you, what is happening in your circle of influence at the moment? What's happening in your respective worlds? I suppose I try to answer that, Colin, but <laughs> suppose I start by saying I am glad to be here wherever that may be. I'm actually in St. Louis, Missouri, in the USA, where it's very warm, in an apartment that has no air conditioning today. Colin's figured out it's 32 degrees. And I think that's warm even by Sydney standards. Uh, let me tell you a bit about myself. Cullen's already introduced me somewhat. Well, I'm the third generation lawyer in a firm that was founded by my grandfather in 1908. As Cullen said, he was the first U.S. lawyer to concentrate in tax law. My father concentrated in tax law. And I started life concentrating in ta tax law. Relevantly, we're working for some of the same families my father and grandfather worked for, and many of them are in their seventh generation of working with my family. Our firm, both in Australia and the US, US helps families run their single family offices. So we understand wealth and family and how to use process to allow accomplishment of goals and purposes. In Australia, we looked for and found someone who also understands the issues of family wealth. And uh, Brett, will you tell people a little bit about yourself and explain briefly what we're doing in Australia? Uh, sure, Charles. Um, well, one thing, Colin, you didn't mention since the uh, Charles has said he's a lawyer, uh, so am I by training. Um, and I did actually start out my career quite a long time practicing law. It's been, oh, I was trying to work it out earlier on, I think 25 years since I last got paid for that, which doesn't mean I don't still practice, but the practicing without getting paid, I think is, you know, no, no practicing certificate. Uh, maybe that's a good thing for our clients. Um, our practice here is very similar to Charles's practice in the US. Um, I think the, the wealth, the, the families that we see in Australia, although some of them are fifth generation wealth families, that's unusual. We're seeing many more first and second generation. And in fact, a lot of the people that we're now talking to are in their first transition of wealth. And they are 
extremely concerned about whether their grandparents, how not to spoil their grandchildren or um, grandchildren worrying about how to sort of carve their life when a lot of money is coming their way. So our, our practices uh, are facing many of the same issues, but I think in Australia the wealth is probably generally closer to first and second generation wealth. And are you noticing any trends from the first generation um, wealth builders as to what they do or um, you know where they've um, garnered most of their wealth? Is there a trend across the board are you finding? Well, I mean, I'll jump in, Charles. Yes, I think we do because a lot of the first-generation wealth creators, a lot of them are quite young. Um, you know, we've had people who have made many hundreds of millions of dollars in technology, for example. Yes. And uh, they are only in their 30s uh, with young families. And so they're uh, typically very interested in remaining entrepreneurial. Um, they are quite untrusting, I have to say, of advisors. Um, they're very careful about who they trust. Um, they want to do a lot of the decision-making themselves, and so we are guiding them rather than doing for them. Uh, I think it's it's often more counselling and advising than it is um, helping them, you know, actually implement. Mm, it's a good point you make there, Brett. And one thing you both... Um we're talking about and it's it's uh, obviously the theme of your first book there charles is um what does it mean to have freedom from wealth when i used to work at the hotel in our my previous life and i was guest experience manager i asked you this question because i thought oh wouldn't wealth mean that you're actually freer than you were before um and you very rightly said that's not the case when you have wealth uh, so i'd love to know what this concept is of having freedom from wealth well that's a good question colin and uh I'd say particularly to young, uh, young lawyers and young advisors, and this is advice from an old lawyer and an old advisor, I'd always start with the question of a client. What is your wealth for? That's a very easy question, and it's hard to answer. Uh, I was working with a fellow who came into our office a few years ago. He was an accidental billionaire. He'd invested in a friend's business maybe 20 years earlier and hadn't invested a lot. By the time he came to see me, the business interest he had was worth a billion dollars or so. And uh, he came into the office. I said, why are you here? He said, oh, I want to save taxes. I said, well, we can do that. We've been doing that for 115 years. But you've told me what you don't want your wealth for, taxes. What do you want it for? He looked at me and he said, well, what are my choices? At first I laughed, but then I realized that's a really good question. And if you're talking about multi-generational wealth, there are lots of strategies, but the only choice is to make sure everyone can be all he or she can be, self-actualization. And Cullen, that gets to the question of what does freedom from wealth mean? Many people are so burdened by the day-to-day -day activities involved in managing their wealth, chasing deals, and so on and so forth, that they lose the freedom. And part of the challenge and part of what we do in Australia and in the U.S., and in fact, we work with families around the world, is we help them design 
their family office so that every member can self-actualize. Now, I have written three books, and each has the title Freedom from Wealth. The first one was a general book I wrote with Don Trone and set out the concept. The second book was a book for wealth inheritors and those who are advising wealth inheritors. And the most recent book, which just came out at the end of last year, is The Chase Continues. It's for people aging or advising those who are aging. And it's a nice way of saying old people. So each of these books has in it freedom from wealth. And the best way I can describe freedom from wealth is to tell a story, uh, which I think will help you understand. I was on the original small board of an organization called the Institute for Private Investors, mainly U.S. families of wealth uh, who got together three or four times a year and spoke about issues relating to wealth. You have a similar organization in Australia. Uh, but in any event, uh, I often spoke at their meetings. And one day I was scheduled to speak on freedom from wealth. My talk was at two in the afternoon. Uh, at lunch, I sat next to a woman I did not know, but she came from a long, wealthy family, very well recognized, very wealthy. And uh, we started talking. I learned she was a very accomplished artist. She had many prizes and she was a professor at an Ivy League college. I must say I was impressed. So I said to her, why are you here? She said her family was trying to decide whether to invest in hedge funds. And she was on the committee and was going to a class on hedge funds to help her understand hedge funds so she could help her family office decide whether to invest in hedge funds. She asked me why I was there. And I said I was there to talk about freedom from wealth. She said, what does that mean? And I said, well, why don't you come to my two o'clock program and you'll hear what it means. She said, oh, I can't come to your two o'clock program. That's when I have the hedge fund class. I said, well, catch up with me this afternoon and I'll talk to you about freedom from wealth. At two o'clock, I started my presentation. And at about three or four minutes after two, the back door opened. She walked in. She sat down. After the program, I went up to her and I said, what happened? What about the hedge funds? She said over and over again, my mind said freedom from wealth, freedom from wealth, until I finally said, this is really boring. And damn it, I'm an artist and I don't need to know about hedge funds. I'm leaving. I got up and I said to myself, the family office can hire someone to decide whether to go into hedge fund. I've seen her often. She says that changed her life. In other words, she wasn't going to waste her time on hedge funds. She had a family office that was well-designed around due diligence to perform that kind of thinking. She wanted freedom from wealth. Uh, so what we do in Australia, what we do in the U.S., we help wealthy families run their offices and their wealth affairs to ensure the wealth purposes are met 
and everybody can self-actualize. Brett, you may want to add how that plays out, freedom from wealth in Australia. Um, we've found that a lot of people, particularly after they've sold their business, Cullen, and they've got money, they feel, often they feel guilty about it. They, they, they hadn't gone into business with the idea of suddenly having a billion dollars or even a hundred million dollars. You know, it's a, it was, it's a byproduct sometimes of having sold their business. Um, and they don't, they don't know how to not work. They're, they're not people who just suddenly say, right, well, I'm going to buy myself a super yacht and travel the world. So they often set up their single family office as a, almost as a means of keeping themselves busy. Yes. And they dig further and further into it. I know it sounds kind of odd that someone who suddenly made the money is then wanting to, to continue working, but we see it again and again. And they dig themselves into a hole uh, where they're getting up, going to the office every day and actually doing something they really hate. Hmm. I mean, mostly they've enjoyed building their businesses. They're passionate about it might have been electrical engineering. It might have been, you know, building machinery, uh, mining businesses, whatever it may be. And then they find that running a single-family office is, if you're going to do it properly, is really boring stuff. I mean, you're reading fund manager reports, you're reading tax reports, you're reading, you know, legal briefs and so on. Um, a lot of our job is to try and give them the sense that all these things are being done properly so that they can be involved in the decision-making that they need to be involved in, but as Charles said, are free to not have to do the stuff that they don't need to do and don't find interesting, but it still needs to get done. And we, it's surprising how many people in Australia we come across who have almost, they've, they've won the lottery in many ways. They've got all this money and then they they kind of don't know how to live a life that isn't stuck in the office. They've, they create another prison for themselves. Yes. Yes, I'm indeed by what you're saying there, Brett and Charles, on the fact that your whole point is to help them break the shackles and self-actualize. I wonder, is it based on Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Is that why? Um, is that where the premise of the book came from, Charles, or is that based on what your yeah. grandfather's um, um, it, philosophy was? It's what we believed, and Maslow was obviously one who wrote about it. Uh, I'd, I. Colin, I'd add to what Brett said, one observation I've made, and that is that Australians are much more casual about process than many other people in many other places. Uh, let's look at investment process, which is crucial. People need to feel comfortable that investments are well managed. Otherwise, they have to dip in and do everything themselves. But in Australia, what I've seen over and over again, and I think Brett has too, we've talked about it, is what I call mateship, that approach to investment. My friend's investing in the deal, so why shouldn't I? We concluded early on that a well-run family investment program involves strong discipline and due diligence that, frankly, we couldn't find in Australia. We didn't find it in the money managers. We didn't find it in the family offices, and we didn't find it in the banks. So we hired 
an institutional strength advisor based in the U.S. that has the highest level of due diligence. And we've relied on them to help us help our family uh, with local staff and Australianized sensibility. But when Brett talks about boring to run a family office, it's really boring to do good due diligence. In fact, in the U.S., we had an investment uh, manager, an investment person, an expert in the office who'd worked institutionally. And I used to tell her, Donna, your job is to bore our clients to death so they understand that due diligence is not fun. It isn't a matter of going on a yacht with a friend who says he's got a great deal. It's a matter of doing hard work making sure there are no hidden fees, no surprises. Uh, I'm sure Brett, Brett will be happy to talk to anyone who wants to know more about this. But again, in Australia, we just haven't seen people who start their family offices recognizing that, nor do we see private investors who recognize it. And a big part of our job is helping people get bored and move on with their life. <laughs> it's very similar to Warren Buffett, I think, gentlemen, when he said the most lucrative investments are usually the most boring ones. Um, it's, yeah, it's very similar. Point. Yeah. And um, I'd like to just um, like kind of piggyback on your second book or third book, Charles, The Chase Continues. What does that actually mean? Is It feels like a bit of a rat race. It feels like once you're out of it, the freedom from wealth, there's something else that'll catch you. Is am I getting the yeah. premise on the title or what's 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 the meaning behind the chase continues? Well, if you read the books, you will see that self-actualization requires a chase, requires your knowing what you want to accomplish and how. There's a kind of belief historically that as a person gets older, he or she sits in a rocking chair and spends his or her day uh, kind of contemplating the past. In fact, age doesn't rob you of the desire to be all you can be. It does rob you of a number of the critical capacities you had to manage a number of things. So this recent book, and I'm really drawing on my own experience with clients and with myself, is how you set your priorities so that you can actually do what you want to do, chase what you want to chase into old age, notwithstanding the fact that your memory may get weaker and so on and so forth. Now, I'm going to make tell you something that's really dawned on me recently, and uh, I'm not sure why it didn't dawn on me before. One of the big issues we deal with counseling clients is the issue of control. And children are always complaining about how their parents are trying to control them. That's true in Australia. It's true everywhere. And uh, I often sit down with a child and say control requires two parties, the controlled party and the controlling party. But what I hadn't realized or thought about until recently is how many parents come to me and say, my kids are trying to control me. So that actually that control issue is hitting both sides. And part of what I address in the book 
is how a child or a counselor can work with an aging person and take the control issue out of the picture. If only by saying to the parent, you don't like being controlled, how do you think your kids like it? Mm. And I, I think it's also the, the other main problem that we've talked about before is how do you, like, especially the, the intergenerational wealth that's going to be changing with baby boomers getting older, um, how do you ensure that your grandchildren get enough so they're looked after, but not so much that they don't do anything with their lives? I'd love to put that question to either of you. Like, how do you solve that problem? I think you solve it by insisting and showing that life is about being all you can be. And money is a relatively minor part of that. Uh, Mark Rank, whom I quote extensively, who's a very bright, very uh, articulate sociologist, talks about the elements of self-actualization. And one of the elements is financial security. He says you can't self-actualize without that. Another element is recognizing that it's the uh, travel to self-actualization rather than getting there. Uh, and the last point is that you have to have optimism and you get that through engagement and community. But look at a lot of wealth inheritors, and this goes to my second book, where their parents say, Either here, I've given you money on a silver platter. I've, I've given you the destination. Don't worry about trying to chase. Well, that's very destroying. And that leaves the kid trying to figure out how to spend as much money as possible. Uh, some parents say, look, I won't give you any money until you self-actualize. That creates financial insecurity. So parenting a wealth inheritor is a very deliberate process. I'd encourage everyone to read my second book to figure that one out. Definitely. And we'll put the uh, the link in the show notes so people can get that. And I want to say we've got only eight minutes to go in the official stream. If you've got any questions, it's 9.54 in Sydney. Please put them in the comments and we'll um, try and get them live to ask these two juggernauts. Um, is there any passion projects, Brett, um, that you're working on or Charles that you're working on right now that you're open to share? Brett, why don't you go first on passion? Mm, um, <laughs> passion projects. Well, it's actually now that the borders are open again, it's traveling for me. I've got uh, children overseas, and so seeing them uh, has been, uh, I, I suppose, been the great. Um, project for us, my wife and I, in the last year or so, has been getting back out. And you know, we lived, in, we've lived in a lot of different countries, and we've got a lot of friends around the world. So, being able to see people, um, you know, see our our children, their children, and so on, uh, I, I wouldn't call it a passion project, but it's certainly been uh, a, a wonderful way of being able to reconnect in person, which I. I think it's funny. It seems I was laughing about this with someone the other day. It seems that half of Australia is currently in Europe. Um, <laughs> you, That's so true. You, you might be one of the only people under the age of thirty who's not there. Um, 
<laughs> uh, I, well, actually, in point of fact, one of our um, one of my colleagues at work, they're going to Europe in two days there, Brett, so they're joining the mass of Australians already over there. Yeah, there's an exodus, although they're probably all sweltering. If you think it's hot where you are, Charles. We're, it's 104 in, in Rome, I hear. Yeah. yeah Emma's in, my, one of my daughters is in northern Italy, and it's up around 40 degrees centigrade. I'm surprised there's room for Australians in Europe. I just got back full of Americans, uh, <laughs> but not many Chinese. No. No, no. Um, and, yes, tell me. One of my favorite friends who since died, at his funeral, his wife said that he woke up every morning and said, thank God I have another day to get things done. And he knew what he wanted to get done every day. The more I age, the more that becomes passionate for me. And I probably have too much I'm trying to get done in terms of taking care of clients and family and friends. And I'm involved in our art museum and involved in an organization that's providing relief in Ukraine. Uh, so I've got plenty of passions. I'm just not sure I have enough time for them all. No, very well said. And it's similar to what Wayne Dyer, the late, great Wayne Dyer, who died in 2015, he wrote a number of books. Um, he used to wake up every day and just say thank you. And that was like to start the day, just thank you for being alive. And I think it's changing it from expectation to appreciation. Um, but just that simple mindset in life is so important. Um, yeah, we're getting towards the end, gentlemen. So I wanted to ask you just a couple more questions. What's some lessons for young um, not not only young lawyers, but people starting their wealth journey that you'd like to impart today or getting to the end of their wealth journey, what would you like people to walk away with if you could impart one lesson? The importance of that question, what is my wealth for or what is your wealth for? And I'd say to any young counselor, don't hesitate to ask that question. Don't hesitate to help your clients answer it. Uh, it's, it's a very important question, and it's a great way to start the conversation. Uh, I like to talk about freedom from wealth as well. Uh, all of these are heavy conversations, much more important than asset allocation. Very true. Very true. And um, any lessons that um, you'd like to impart there, Brett? You know, it's interesting. Charles unfortunately stole my thunder, um, <laughs> so I'll uh, I'll kind of follow on and just say uh, the thing that I find um, disappointing in many ways. And I think the legal profession has drifted a little bit towards being like accountants. You know, uh, dare I say, it's become a bit transactional with clients, and I think that. This, uh, the the idea of the trusted lawyer, I think you're a trusted lawyer not just because you do good work, it's because you actually care about the client and you do ask you do ask questions and you try and get to know know them and I think it's listening to the answers as, as well as answering the questions that you're not always going to get the fully honest answer from a client on the first question. You have to listen to what they say and and uh, sometimes ask a few more. But I think, you know, my, my view is you enrich your own career by engaging with clients as, as people and asking them 
uh, more counselling kind of questions, I suppose, than um, just transactional ones. Mm, well said. Well said. And um, to, to close the official part of the stream, gentlemen, when all is said and done and we, um, we all move off this mortal coil, as it were, how would you like to be remembered? Charles, we'll start with you. How would you like to be remembered, sir? Well, I'd like to be remembered as somebody who cares about people, who cares about community. We haven't really mentioned community, but community is very important for any wealth holder, any advisor. And uh, that's how we want to be remembered. Well said, Charles. And what about yourself, Brett? Uh, well, I suppose I, I can't really disagree with what Charles has said. For me, it's being able to make an impact through through our family. I've got a number of children and feeling that they're all good people and they're engaging in the community uh, as we do, as my wife and I do. I think that's that's very important to us. We've had a lot of blessings in our life, but uh, trying to find ways to give back. Um, giving is the essence of living. Well done there, uh, Brett. I think you make some good points too. Um, where can people find you, gentlemen? Where are you hanging out the most if people want to reach out, learn more, buy the book? Like, um, What would you recommend? Well, if they want to buy the book, I think they can do that on Amazon. <laughs> uh, where I'm hanging out right now is St. Louis, Missouri, but I travel fairly. I used to come to Australia often. If I have any passion, it would be to get to Australia, particularly in the U.S. summer when you've got nice, cool weather. But uh, that's where you can find me. I think that, uh, Cullen, you can give people my email address. Brett's a lot easier to find. Yep, I'm Very in Sydney. Good. Cullen and, and I travel to see our clients in just about every every major city, including in, in New Zealand, but we've, we typically don't go to Perth. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> we've found that uh, slightly a bridge too far for us. Nothing against the Western Australians, but uh, uh, we found it just too, too hard to keep looking after clients over there. No, it makes sense. I, I recently did the, uh, the red-eye flight from 11 o'clock in the evening and then you arrive in Sydney at 7. Um, yeah, it's certainly an interesting experience, let me tell you. Um, yeah. Similar to flying from um, L.A. to New York, Charles. I don't know if you've ever done that in a day, but... Uh, I've done like it. A, yeah. But, okay. Colin, it's a lot easier to do when you have a six-month-old and uh, you wouldn't be <laughs> sleeping at home anyway. No, no. He, he woke up every 20 minutes last night. So, um, yeah, so hard oh. in the eyes. If, if <laughs> Not, my, my poor wife had to um, cope with the brunt of it. But, yeah, it's... You know, we always say this too shall pass, as as it were, um, and very soon he won't be like that very much. So we're going to enjoy the moment. But thank you so much, gentlemen. Um, we'll bring you back for some bonus questions. It's been a fantastic um, law live with you both, and thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Colin. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Brett. Um, and if you are a legend of law or know someone who is, feel free to furnish the details to me, and we'll endeavour to get them on the show. We come out Wednesday, every Wednesday, speaking to a legend or legends of law. Um, and we'll upload this podcast like we do um, to Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Mm -hmm.